Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Because the demand is always going to be there in Canada, United States, uh, Great Britain, Ireland. So as long as people want cocaine and fentanyl and all this, somebody's going to supply it. So it doesn't matter if you take El Chapo, Guzman off the table, his organization, his roots, what they call in Mexico, plazas, the plazas exist. The supply chain has not been disrupted. So it's just a matter of who is efficient enough to get it across the border. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He's locked up in a Colorado jail with some of the world's most notorious prisoners. But the legacy of Joaquim El Chapo Guzman lives on in a never-ending cycle of violence and corruption in Mexico. Since his incarceration, his Sinaloa cartel has continued to flood the US with drugs and terrorise the Mexican people from its base in Culiacán. Now, with his chief bodyguard and right-hand man handed over to the US, And with his son Ovidio Guzman finally arrested after a gun battle with Mexican military which resulted in the death of 29 people, will things finally improve? Today I'm talking to author Douglas Century, whose book Hunting El Chapo tells the story of the drug boss known as Shorty and his ongoing influence on his homeland of Mexico. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. I mean, Joaquim El Chapo Guzman, it's just every time you look, there's another news story relating to him and relating to the ongoing terror that emanates from the fact from his operation, despite the fact he's been jailed. A couple of things I wanted to talk to you about. Firstly, his son who has been arrested and the US are looking for extradition. I see there this week that his right hand man is being extradited back to the US and of course, there is the former Mexican drug czar, czar uh, Garcia Luna, who has been convicted of his role in basically taking backhanders from the Sinaloa cartel. There's this sort of hopelessness to the whole situation that you wonder who's worse. Is it the drug dealers, the big cartel bosses, or is it the politicians who have allowed them buy them off and corrupt the whole system? Well, you raise a very interesting point. They are a symbiotic relationship. So people who are Mexican journalists, friends of mine who are quite cynical about it, 
view it all as once one entity. The, the the corrupt politicos allow the narco-traffickers to uh to function. Uh the supply and demand issue is really one that I'm concerned with because the demand is always going to be there in Canada, United States, and uh Great Britain, Ireland. So as long as people want cocaine and fentanyl and all this, somebody's going to supply it. So it doesn't matter if you take El Chapo Guzman off the table his organization, his roots, what they call in Mexico, plazas, the plazas exist. The supply chain has not been disrupted. So it's just a matter of who is efficient enough to get it across the border. Um, but yes, for years, Chapo was known as the guy that bribed everybody to the very, very top. And he was very good at, uh, you know, that expression in, in Spanish is plato o plumo. Uh, do you want the letter, the silver? He was, he would, he would more often use the silver. Mm. It was a more efficient way to I mean, he corrupted at his trial in 2019 in Brooklyn. It was alleged that the then president of Mexico had accepted upwards of 100 million in bribes directly from the Sinaloa cartels to sort of look the other way. That was not admissible as evidence, as I recall, but it was floated in court. And of course, you know, this is the guy that's basically um, Luna, the, the the top law enforcement person. Mm. In the in the country is basically saying yes i did uh he was a fixer he was a he made sure the the, the proper people got bribed but yeah the infrastructure is there and it's yeah i suppose it's depressing but it, it's depressing that there's this opioid crisis and there's yeah so many people want to party with recreational ireland has one of the highest rates of like recreational cocaine use i saw yes i mean in western yes. europe we do indeed. Yeah. We have embraced cocaine like ourselves. Weirdly, the Dutch and the Spanish, I think, and then the Australians are just we we really like our cocaine here. And yeah, I mean, look, it's caused all the problems that I write about, the the gang wars, the there's so much money in it. We're empowering by the, the purchase of this drug. We're empowering the likes of the Kinahan organization because the money goes straight up the lines into their pockets ultimately. But there is a disconnect in this world that people who buy it don't seem to get that. Um, yep. But OK, so let's start with Chapo, because your book, Hunting El Chapo, follows his career, basically, mm -hmm. his life, his early life and and what he sort of the significance of him as a character on the decline of Mexico and uh, its societies, particularly around Culiacan, where the Sinaloa cartel are based but let's start with him, because, of course, he was jailed in 2019 after a big trial in Brooklyn that I would have loved to have been at. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, but he he is complaining, first of all. He's in prison in Colorado in the middle of nowhere, and he's complaining about his conditions. Yeah. So. He's saying he's be, he's suffering human rights abuses because if I don't know if they allow this level of detention in Europe, but Florence Supermax is where John Gotti was and the various terrorist bombers. It's, it is really serious. 23 hours a day, you're alone. Um, no contact with other prisoners. You have a little bit of exercise time in a private little, but you know, his, his lawyer has said, Oh no, my, my client has not seen the sun, no sunlight since 2019. So it's really a lockdown mm. sort of Dickensian. Like they don't really, I don't think we have too many, people who think that's a good way to imprison people, but he also got like 400 years. Right. Yeah. So he, he has, he, and I don't, the problem is for him, he can't give up anybody unless he were to give up some high level of politician, uh, really, really high and actually prove it. 
but that's not what he's asking. He's asking to be extra to to be released back to Mexico to serve his time, and the U.S. is never going to let that happen. No, because so yeah, he'll escape again, no doubt, and we'll come to that. But yeah, I don't know how I feel about all that. I mean, he murdered and was responsible for the deaths, the horrific deaths and tortures of thousands of people. There's horrendous stories of you know uh, what he's done, what he was capable of doing, what he's ordered, um, and yet my humanity makes me feel that no human being should be kept like that in a prison, no matter what they've done. Yeah. I mean, I think Europeans and generally, like I, I'm talking now from Canada, we don't have that kind of really, really severe lockdown. And and Amnesty International and various people have said this, this sort of, uh, mm. they call it, uh, remember Guantanamo Bay, they were all the talk about Gitmo and, and was that human rights. So this, this imagine you're up in the high, high mountains of Colorado, and I think they call it, uh, you know, Gitmo or Alcatraz mm. in the Rockies. So, yeah, it's not a good place to do time. There's only about 400 prisoners there. Ironically, we'll get to Ovidio, his son. If he is extradited, he'll end up in this same prison, most likely, without any contact with his father. They'll just be, they'll be aware that they're in the same um they're in the same prison. Right. But I mean, this is a guy that got through his whole life corrupting jailers, corrupting um, local, state, uh, national officials. And I think he felt he, he did feel he was untouchable and there were always going to be, be another way he could get out of the system. And he's finally hit that. The rubber hit the road, like they say, and he, he realizes, no, this is it. And now they've all, all they can plead is he's going through psychological meltdowns. He's very depressed. He's not seeing the sun. Well, who wouldn't be depressed yeah. if if I had if I was locked in a little room? And I think he's allowed to see some TV, but it has to be recorded previously and they've screened it. Um, no family has come. You know, obviously he has a wife who was American born. But these sons that we're going to talk about, they're mm -hmm. not American citizens. So even though you're allowed some family visits, he has no one who can come see him. So he he has to be a very uh, isolated, lonely, and yeah, the very the 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 uh, depressed narco. I guess you call him the. Uh, <laughs> he's suffering psychological trauma, but he inflicted a lot of trauma on his people. So well, this how much do you feel? And this is where we're compromised in our in our thinking. Emma Coronel, of course, being his wife now, is she or is she, is she in jail or out of jail at the moment? Or was she? Ever? I think she, she was. Oh, yeah. She so she was born in the U.S. And so were his children or, or the twins that he has by her. And and she did something quite stupid. I think she she was coming through Washington, D.C. And there was already a warrant for her. Now, I'm not currently sure if she's still locked up or what the charges have been. But yeah, she was charged with basically facilitating his his narco empire. A lot of these wives do mm -hmm. do something that, I mean, they're they're generally not, except for that rare case of these like Griselda, these infamous um, narco bosses who are women. Generally, the wives aren't really intimately involved in it, but she did enough that the, the U.S. Fed. So I think she's she's being held in the States. But in any event, she she foolishly traveled through the U.S. thinking she could uh, mm -hmm. she could go scot-free. And if the, if the U.S. feds have a warrant for you, they know where you are and they're ready. They're ready to get, get you at an airport. So she 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 was obviously by his side throughout his trial in Brooklyn. But just before we yeah. come on to the sun, um, just this week, there's a, a new story to put my glasses on to read this. But uh, yeah, his right hand man who goes by the name of Jorge Ivan El Cholo Guzman, 
he oh, totally. is, yep, yep. yes, so he has been extradited now to the US. Um, yep. So he's obviously on his way to a similar kind of incarceration. He was described as Guzman's bodyguard, his right-hand man, his chief enforcer. Um, but it strikes me, and, and this does bring us on to his son, Ovidio, I think it is. Uh, I'm sure I'm not mm-hmm. pronouncing that very well, but like the policing of Chapo Guzman and Sinaloa and Culiacan, it seems to me that they went for the, we call it the head of the snake. But in a way, that's a kind of political statement to bring him in. And they, when they did arrest Guzman, and of course, obviously, he'd been on the run for years. He'd escaped and he had met up with the actor Sean Penn in the jungles because he wanted a, a movie made of him. But they brought him out. They f- were photographed beside him. It was it was a real kind of a marketing opportunity. But from a sure. policing point of view, they seem to have left too much behind. You know, you look at the yeah. likes of the Kinahan organization and how currently it's been chipped, chipped, chipped away at from the bottom up. So they're going to take the bottom and the top. So hopefully nothing will will survive it. It will all collapse as such. And they're talking about that being a blueprint of modern policing. But in this case, was it just that? Was it bringing him as a figurehead out? And they left the sons behind to run the whole show. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it was just lopping the head off a, a fast-growing plant that rejuvenates quickly. Um, actually, so if this is the book you're referring yes. to, Hop Miguel Chapo, and it, here, if you, this is the fellow, there's a photo of him. Uh, Cholo Ivan was like the very scary, I guess we can call him a murderer. Uh, Cholo Ivan just means gangster, gang, gangster Ivan. And it, that's who Chapo was uh, busted with in his final escape in uh, 2014 mm. when they um, they recaptured him after the ill-advised meeting with Kate Del Castillo. Kate Del Castillo was the beautiful Mexican actress he really wanted to meet. And she brought along this straggly American gringo that he had no idea who he was. And he goes, who is this? And they, they had his, his boys had to research who Sean Penn was because he had no clue. He didn't want to meet Sean Penn. He wanted to sleep with, meet and sleep with Kate Del Castillo and then provided, provided provided her with his life story. He he was getting annoyed that so many people were profiting on his uh his life images and he thought he should have a piece of that pie. And yeah, his, his, uh, his co-equal in the, in the Sinaloa infrastructure is a guy named Mayo Zambada, slightly older than him. You never hear about him and you, and that's the way it should be. I mean, I don't know how the old school gangsters were in, um, you know, in the old days in Ireland. And I know I've been reading about the craze and the Richardsons and, Mm -hmm. you know, in London in the sixties, the craze were equally insane. You can't, like be public gangsters with nightclubs and still doing the hands-on violence the way you are. So for, for El Chapo to come out of the shadows and really meet with Hollywood producers and talk about getting his life rights, um, it, it kind of goes against the principles of all sorts of organized crime, which is uh, make yourself scarce, you know. And Mayo Zambada is still the probably the most powerful guy. People don't know where he is and he's not interested in the fame and the... Uh, Mm. I don't know. For me, Chapo had a very clear weakness, which was narcissism. He loves the he loved when they put him on the Forbes. This was the real mythologizing moment for him when Forbes magazine ranked the billionaires in the world. And and they put this narco trafficker number 701. And anywhere you go in Mexico, if you just see that number 701 on a baseball cap, on a T-shirt, that is Absolute. That's code for Chapo. It's like pure seven hundred one. So they took the Forbes list, the Forbes magazine, that said he was the seven hundred hundred and first richest man, and they said, "Well, you know, this was a guy that was 
illiterate. He still is illiterate. He couldn't, uh, he didn't finish past when he was eight years old, I think was the last time he went to a classroom. And yet he rose to this elevated status in, you know, mm-hmm. the billionaire world. So for the people of Mexico, that's sort of a, a very intoxicating mythology. The dark side is not something people really know that intimately, meaning what an awful human being, like mm. literally uh, murderer, yes. But um, I'll give you an example. But just so, so get away. I mean, I don't, I don't like the glamorization of the narco world that's happened largely because of good looking actors playing them on TV. And you don't really see. Yeah, well, you can imagine how savage uh they are in in terms of murder and and betrayal yes you know but one little detail i couldn't i was writing this book with this with andrew hogan an irish american dea agent and he said yeah it was disgusting you know chapo used to ask for virgins this madam would provide him with young girls 13 14 year old girls and when we went to write the book the lawyer you know, you go through a vetting, you know this as a journalist. Well, how do you know they're underage? Well, look at these pictures. Well, we couldn't prove it. So we had to say in the book, oh, they looked awfully young. Mm-hmm. Well, flash forward, I just got to know one of the, the, I don't know if you've heard of these twins, the the, the Flores twins in Chicago. Were yes. The biggest. Yeah. So I got to know one, they, they called him Jay, Margarito. And I told him that story and he said, oh, that's not just a story. He asked me, I met Chapo in the, in the mountains of Durango. So this is an American born Mexican-American down there and Chapo says to him look I like those black and Puerto Rican girls up there in the U.S. can you bring me some but they have to be virgins like 12 or 13 and the guy says senor that's like that's disgusting to me I can't do that I'm sorry um so when you visualize this you go okay well maybe that's a kind of hillbilly like you know he really is from the mountains but nevertheless by our standards that's child rape yes right and and that's what you're looking at. What you don't see that on the Netflix show. You don't see that he he doesn't want to get venereal disease. So he he specifies that they provide him with these young girls who are deflowered, and then who knows? They're thrown back into the street. I don't know. But yeah, this is a not savory man, and I don't know why he's he's only glamorized in the sense that um, he was a bit of a Robin Hood figure, of course, in the in that in that state, Sinaloa. He provided a lot more of the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. If a soccer field needed to be built, a football pitch, uh, schools needed renovation, the government doesn't get around. This, this is really the backwaters, right? Yes. And there is so much corruption in the Mexican system. So it's almost like the old school feudal Sicilian mafia or the Camorra. And you hear, oh, well, you know, but they would build the church or they would. So the people feel a certain level of um, loyalty. And I don't think he's feared in Sinaloa as much as he was taken as a fixture of society you know Mm. so people wouldn't people wouldn't give him up let's say very rare to hear of somebody wanting to inform on him partly because it was lethal to do so but i think he did provide a certain level of robin hood you know giving back to the poor people that some people appreciated and also i think that within mexican society since there really isn't a high level of drug use of the recreational drugs we're used to because it's so expensive there they, they had a, the idea that this man made billions by, hey, you know, you sold it to the gringos, you know, they're, you're selling it to the white man or the Europeans and they're sticking it up their nose or they're shooting it in their arm. And um, it's almost like, hey, you made your money by poisoning those idiots who are so degenerate that they want to do all that drugs. So, yes, they um, they rationalize it in, in, in many ways. Did you and you've also I interviewed you before about your book, The Last Boss of Brighton, but. 
a Russian mafiosa who you got quite close to really while doing <laughs> the book. Uh, but just have you noticed you, you, in your work, have you noticed similarities in the sort of the finite number of people who hit the very, very top of that tree? Um, and obviously Guzman would be be one. Um, Christy Kinahan, for example, is another maybe. I'm not totally comparing them, but there, there are these people that are there at the very, very, very top of their game across Europe, Australia, Asia, America. Is there something that bonds them together? You know, if they weren't in the drug world, would they be a sort of a Trump or would they be, (laughs) (laughs) you know, what sort of a comparable character could you throw up? Well, it's an interesting point because I've talked to several people about that with you know, it's common, let's say, in hip hop to say, look at look at these guys who were dr- selling drugs. And if they applied that same hustle and mentality, they'd be billionaires in the corporate world. Well, in some businesses, you know, guys like Jay-Z and 50 Cent have been able to do it. But, you know, it's a different skill set. They're very these guys are very impulsive. Mm-hmm. They don't have a delayed gratification. Uh, uh, so I don't know that, it, you know, it's a very it's a very um, you don't think it translates. Facile. Yeah, and it's a facile thing. Oh, look, if these if these guys making millions in the streets as drug dealers, well, that presupposes that you're able to eat shit from people and like be told what to do. A lot of them can't do that. And be told, you, you know, one thing about Chapo that made him fascinating for me, and you can read it in this book, all the yeah, he was a micromanager of every level. He wanted he really enjoyed from when he wasn't having sex constantly with random women. And his many were wives that he never divorced. He was just in the weeds, the little details of where's that 500 kilos? Mm-hmm. How are we getting that? He loved it. He he loved the the thrill or the, mm-hmm. um, and I, yeah, I find that there's a certain, well, you've got to be lucky. You have to have like the, the nine lives of a cat, like Boris, the Russian mobster. He'd been shot so many times, but, you know, Chapo escaped numerous close calls. Um, so, yeah, the defining characteristic, you need, you need quite a bit of luck and you also need to have uh, corrupted friends in high places. To have lasted that long, meaning the Al Capone strategy, mm. let me just, you know, and I, I love this, by the way, when Americans talk to me or Canadians about, oh, God, look at that country, Mexico. You look at how corrupt it is. I said, have you ever researched Al Capone's Chicago? Because <laughs> people just, I say, you know, he chose the mayors. Mm. He he he. Get, if they raided, you know, any of these Irish or Italian or Jewish uh, prohibition operations. If there were raids successfully done, it was because Capone gave it. Hey, you, you can go take that load down. He ran the entire city. So when when an American says to me, "Oh God, look at how corrupted Mexico is," I said, "They're following the Chicago blueprint <laughs> down to a T." Do you it's think not- though that that micromanagement you discuss there is that this sort of like overemphasis on control, and that's the same as buying and corrupting the politicians you're controlling. Everybody, you're controlling the young girls that he's having sex with. He's controlling anybody who works for him. He's controlling the kind of, you know, the general public by fear. And then he's controlling and corrupting politicians, you know, legal people and police probably through money. Yeah. Well, you have to remember, too, that the reason the Mexicans, I mean, for the vast majority of people kind of know this now from Netflix, the, the Mexicans had always had these roots of smuggling marijuana back yeah. in the 
but before there was, you know, legalized cannabis everywhere that, you know, used to talk, talk about Acapulco gold. Mm-hmm. So there are already all these plazas or these, these smuggling routes existed going way, way back. There's even some like the golf cartel on the, on the other side of the Pacific side, they even had like smuggling routes going back to prohibition, getting booze up. So there were always this, okay, the Americans want something we have. Mm-hmm. What they basically did after, after Reagan cracked down when the, the, the really rich were cracking down on the, those cigarette boat, you know, shipments coming up through Miami. Well, the, the Colombian cartels said, well, we have another way straight up through Central America overland. <laughs> and that was me. And they just partnered with the Mexicans. At a certain point, the Padrino, the, the corrupted cop, Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, who's considered the father of the, of the cartel system. There was only one cartel. He set it up called the Federation. And he was a corrupt judicial cop. And he basically said to them, why don't you just pay us in product? Stop paying us in money. And then they could undersell the Colombians. And pretty soon they went from being middlemen to being the major, the major transporters. So it's been in their, in their blood. I mean, Mm. most of these guys who are Chapo's age were smuggling marijuana, you know, Chapo devised these narco tunnels, these famous tunnels that go under the border to smuggle weed because it smells so strongly. Cannabis has such a strong order. You, you can get down underground through a hydraulic tunnel and the dogs can't smell you. Now they use it for, for cocaine, but they don't really need to use that Cocaine doesn't have that odor. Mm-hmm. So anyway, if you look at the sort of history of the smuggling, it's sort of in their blood. And I get a guy like Chapo, I couldn't figure out why would he care, you know, if they had these little cigarette boat or these, sorry, these trawlers with GPS loads of 375 kilos, one would go missing. And he kept hounding his guys. Where's that? Did you find it yet? Did you circle with the Cessna? And the cops were joking, saying, God, he's burning up more fuel. Yeah. <laughs> on those planes than the, than the but he just couldn't let a little little details go. And at the end of the day, I, I was trying to figure out what was his animus, like what what motivated him internally. And I think he just loved it. He just loved being in the the grind of the daily. Mm. How much is this city bringing in? And I mean, that's a personality type. That's what he was good at doing. He was good at. And he, um, w- he would never accept a loss, though, you know, as a, a businessman, you know, in, a, in the ordered society. No matter what it is you're doing, even if you own a grocery store, you have to accept there will be a loss. Something will break. People will steal. He wouldn't. Well, well, he would. He would. You know what's funny? So all this mythology to, oh, God, if you ripped off Chapo, you were dead. Definitely. He killed many, many people. But they told me Chapo was much more interested in keeping the wheels going smoothly. Once you murder someone, things break down. There's revenge. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of inter internecine wars, you know, between the Beltradlevas. A lot of the bloodshed that happened in Sinaloa were really just cousins of Chapo's getting into wars. But like his 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 son, the heir apparent Edgar, was murdered by accident in a in a cartel war within Sinaloa. But um, yeah, I think you know there's a, the Godfather line, you know, blood is bad for business. Uh, there were stories I I would hear the DEA and the Homeland Security guys these on the ground they understand the act actually what was going on they had them under surveillance and they said no there were cases where like five thousand kilos would go missing on a shipment mm-hmm. now there are seizures and there's things that go wrong well what would happen the guy would be flown into Culiacan, which is a big metropolis the one big city in in sinaloa he'd be blindfolded and driven around in circles and then he'd come to meet the boss Chapo. And then I said, oh, and then, then he killed him, chopped him up, right? And he said, no, many a time the guy, we saw more than once the guy would walk out alive because he was able to explain, well, this is what happened. And if Chapo believed him, he would say, okay, well, these losses happen. The feds make a raid or people screw up. So he didn't kill you. He wasn't, you know, like uh, Tony Montana and Scarface where you just see this 
completely yeah. psychopathic killer if you cross him. There were ways that you could, if you dealt with Chapo honestly and you could explain, you know, the Canadian uh, border security was tight and they he would believe you if you could back it up, if you had receipts, as the kids say. Yeah. So he wasn't he, he wasn't a, a bloodthirsty guy in that sense. He actually was he lasted as long as he did because he was a good businessman. Mm. He knew that bribing the like you could not the, the reason you read the book I wrote. It was such a hard operation to go into Culiacan, to go into the heart of Sinaloa with the Marines, with helicopters, because all the police are corrupted. The local soldiers are corrupted. And on every corner, there are Halconas, there are Hawks, there are lookouts. And he knew everything that was happening before, you know, mm-hmm. before they could get within inches of him. So, so he'd bought everybody. And he'd, yeah, bought, he'd, bought, bought, he'd bought their loyalty and maybe maybe for some people he had their loyalty because he created a better life for them with the money and whatever, the, the roads he built and the, the football pitches. His son, yeah. Ovidio, so the older son died in a shootout and yeah, o- Ovidio is the middle son. And the last time they tried to arrest him, there was absolute mayhem on the streets um, and mm-hmm. the, the Mexicans kind of had to back off. Um, but they went in again in January and they have been successful this time, albeit with the loss of 29 lives. Yeah, it was crazy, right? I mean, I'm sure you saw it in Ireland in 2019. I just think of things as pre-COVID and post-COVID. So that was pre- just a bit pre-COVID, right? Yeah. And I, I remember <laughs> there was, yeah, they got him. And then there was this massive military shootout where the cartel gunmen came with more guns. And eventually was settled here. Look, we'll give him back to avoid f- further lo- loss of life. That's because they hadn't planned this a stealth operation to get him. Now, they knew where he was. Now, I know from, you know, the DEA and the Homeland Security in the U.S., they have drones. They have they have uh, access to classified level of they know where these guys are always pretty much. Yeah. Even Chapo when he's in the mountains. The question is, you know, think of the most inaccessible backwoods of, uh, I don't know. Europe doesn't have that much. It's so populated. But, you know, if you think of the American West or, well, there's probably parts of Ireland and the hills where it would, there's only one little muddy road going up there where, so you'd have to catch him by surprise. And he knows all the back roads. So um, Ovidio, they knew where he was. They decided to make a raid. It seems a bit old news now, but if you recall, Joe Biden and the prime minister of Canada, Pierre, Sorry, his father was Pierre. Uh, Justin Trudeau were going down to Mexico to have a big press conference about the three, they called it the three amigos. Well, I don't know how big the fentanyl crisis is in Ireland and and the rest of Europe, but it's all they're talking about in America, fentanyl, fentanyl overdoses, fentanyl. This is, you know, a a legitimate painkiller for surgeries, but it's a thousand times stronger than heroin and there's overdoses. Well, when they did bust him, Mm-hmm. I don't know if you got this. The headlines all were fentanyl kingpin. Yes. Well, the the thing that the Mexicans did that the Colombians didn't do, they sell everything. Mm-hmm. You know, Chapo was selling methamphetamine. They they are getting the pre- precursor drugs from China for the fentanyl. Yes, cocaine. But any drug that they can figure out that the Americans and Canadians want, they'll they'll supply it. So, yes, he was supplying fentanyl. But I just thought it was a total photo opportunity moment. Like... Mm-hmm. They could then announce, hey, we are making progress in this fentanyl crisis. We just arrested a kingpin. He's one of many. He's one of many fish in the sea. He's one of many traffickers. Uh, They decided to put their foot down. The reason the violence got so crazy is they managed this time to catch him unawares and get him to the airport. Mm -hmm. 
So the previous time it was just, he was on the road and I think there was just shootouts. Once you're at the airport in, in um, I guess it was in Mazatlan, he, once you're at the airport, you can then be airlifted to the United States. In this case, it was to Mexico City, where they don't have they don't have control over the capital of Mexico, really. Yeah. But they do have control of the state. For Mexico is a vast country, you know, with dozens and dozens of states. So it's basically saying you're going to take him out of our terrain. That was their last chance to try to keep him on the ground. So his gunman ended up shooting, you know, passenger jets. And the the horrifying thing I saw on social media, there was these little kids, little girls and boys on the plane saying, Mommy, in Spanish, why are they shooting at us? Um, and that was, I think that was kind of disgusting probably to most of the American public. But the reason his gunman did that is they knew that the minute he was, uh, lifted out to Mexico city, which he was, and he went to the Altiplanos prison, the same one that his father tunneled out of, mm-hmm. but I'm sure they're, they're watching it carefully. <laughs> and they immediately announced, oh, um, he will not be extradited. And I said, that was just to simmer down the, <laughs> the masses. Because I, I now I see the U.S. has made a formal request for his extradition. If you remember the way they got Chapo finally across the border, it was like the last day of Barack Obama's presidency. And at the last minute, the very last moment, they basically put him on a helicopter and gave him to the U.S. So I think they'll do the same thing. They're just waiting to catch the gunman unawares. But um, he was never a top boss. You know, these... Um, yeah, I was wondering because, I mean, he's, what age is he now? About 30, 32, is he? A video? Anybody born in 1990 sounds like a kid to me. So yeah. he's born in 1990. <laughs> oh, God, he know. is a kid. <laughs> yeah, he's a kid. And and the thing is, I um, there's a joke or there's a kind of expression in Mexican culture. They call them narco juniors. <laughs> They're kind of like the young Turks, right? The narco juniors are, and Chapo, you read in our book, would berate his sons. He would say, well, what's, with the, what's with the Bugatti and the McLaren? Like his sons would bring in these really high-end cars from the US, mm-hmm. partly because it's a good money, you know, mm-hmm. buying cars with cash, you can flip them. It's money laundering. But they did like to drive around in these really crazy fancy cars. And Chapo's car was a, a Volkswagen Jetta, or was it a Passat? Anyway, it was a very normal Volkswagen that he he kitted out with the level four armor, but he could drive around in Culiacan in a normal looking car. He And so he would tell his sons, like Ovidio, who's known as Raton, like uh, the mouse, um, and the other, he had four other main sons. He would tell them, what's with the freaking crazy expensive cars? You're drawing too much heat. You know, it's too much attention. He understood that level of it, even in Culiacan. But the, the narco juniors were never schooled with these, the level of, the sons uh, are the sons are always the same, always yeah. the same across the board. So, They're just so, overprivileged, and they haven't got that same work ethic of the father. And uh, exactly, you know, sometimes if it's handed to them the business, albeit a drug business, they just screw it up completely. Um, we and s- they've we see it again and well, again. Yeah, it's, it must be the same with. It certainly was true with the American mafia, like they, the, the like the Gambino family in uh, New York. At one point, their younger generation was getting so soft that they started to import uh, their Sicilian cousins, Gambinos, from, straight from Sicily, who still had some of that really hardcore Sicilian <laughs> blood. Like yeah. you know, you don't talk. Um, well, yeah. So they, they grew up privileged. Some of them even got university de- degrees. Their dads they followed their fathers into the business, but they never spent the hours out in the hot sun actually being farmers. You know, when Chapo was ever captured and asked questions, he would say, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm a simple granero. I'm a simple farmer. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, he farmed poppies and marijuana. <laughs> he was a <laughs> farmer, but no, these kids are privileged. Uh, they dress differently. They would have the Breitling watches. There was a video that went viral about, I don't know, eight months ago. It wasn't Chapo's son, but it was one of his nephews in a nightclub. Something happened. He pulls out his pistol and just starts shooting into the ceiling. And he's not arrested. Nobody comes to talk to him. They let him walk out. So they had impunity. They 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 had the the worst elements of how mm-hmm. 19 to 25-year-old boys already act privileged. And then you factor in that, do you know who my father is? And they're not bragging about the mayor. They're saying, my father is the most wanted drug lord. You better not mess with me. But he didn't have the skills. He's not known as particularly bright. Um, you know, not to get too much in the week. How's he, how's he going to get on in prison then? I mean, a guy like him, I mean, absolutely privileged beyond belief from the moment he was born. Oh, yeah, okay. He has a psychopath of a father to deal with. Um, and we don't know where the mother is at this point. But like, you know, Chapo is a particular age. He obviously has a brain that keeps functioning and keep work keeps working in a sort of survival mode way that he's constantly thinking of ways of getting out, getting back to Mexico, you know, escaping again. But the son is a different story and he's very young. And to go into that Colorado facility and be locked down pretty much 24 yeah. seven is going to be very difficult. To well, they, they have to. I mean, while he I'm, he's in Altiplano in Mexico, yeah. so I'm sure there are corrupted guards giving him his his. You know, basically, you know, in Chapo's day, you know, he basically in his first prison stint, he went and he came and went when he wanted. You know, he in Puerto Grande, his first prison escape, he was kind of there mm-hmm. uh, because he chose to be there to lay low. But he was having prostitutes coming in and cognac and or, or scotch, whatever he wanted. Um, I'm sure he uh, the video uh, Lopez Guzman. He, I'm sure he's fine. In for the moment, yeah. Once they, I'm sure he would actually rather do real time with the general population in America because there are so many Mexican gangs in the American prison system. They're so powerful that he would get, he would by de facto have a protective uh, circle. He would be with whether whichever branch it would Mm -hmm. be if he had been in an actual state prison. But no, he'll go into that 24 hour uh, lockdown, and that uh, you know my guy Boris in my Russian book, he said just just doing that for 12 months. Uh, 24 hours a day in Manhattan Correctional Center, uh, MCC. He said, you can really go crazy. Uh-huh. Luckily, I had books, you know, so I don't, yeah, I don't think these young guys are cut out for it. And he, I he wonder, might... like, is he of any value, you know, because, of course, your only other option in that position, if he is extradited, of course, now we're we're kind of jumping the gun because he hasn't been extradited as of yet. But your only other option, obviously, then is to cooperate with the uh, the authorities. Yeah. Ha- has he something to give? Has he Ismael Mayo to give? <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, they're kind of a war with, there's a, an internal war. Mm. Mayo, so they, they call all the sons of Chapo, the, los Chapitos, the little Chapos. Mm. And there's been some power struggle against uh, Mayo Zambada. I don't think he would dare. I think that would be his death warrant. I think he's, I mean, I don't know. I don't know the guy's personality. He might have been schooled enough in his father's ways to know, um, you know, keep your mouth shut. Uh, also, one thing about Chapo, this is why, like, even the DEA guy who captured him, Andrew, when when he got sentenced to 400 years, I said, do you think it's over? And he goes, I don't know. With this guy, I always feel like there's another shoe that's going to drop. <laughs> like, not that he's going to escape, but who knows? So I wouldn't be surprised if he said, I can give you who we could give, honestly, would be a, a, a 
next year is a presidential election in Mexico. So if he were to say, I have information on uh, the amount of money that we gave to this party. Yes. I mean, but that would, you, I could imagine you'd get killed in prison. You know, mysteriously, there was a fire in your cell. That's the kind of high level people that they were dealing with. Yeah. And those are the kind of people that don't come to the U.S. to do prison time. Mm-hmm. That's the scary thing. If you're giving $100 million to some politician for, for protection, and then you turn around and say, now I'm going to spill the beans on all that. Mm-hmm. I would be very afraid that mysteriously you uh, you had a bad bowl of soup or something in prison. <laughs> or, oh, you know, the Epstein... Absolutely. The mystery of what happened to Epstein. You know, that's why, I mean, I'm sure Jeffrey Epstein did kill himself. I'm positive. He couldn't handle it at the time. But the theories that he was assassinated by the Clintons, and you know, this is what happens when you start having information to give up on very powerful people. You tend to die mysteriously in prison. You know, this is... Uh, I mean, absolutely. It would, it, would, it would certainly be that. But I mean, the politicians-wise then, so this guy, Gen- Gennaro Garcia Luna, he accepted millions of dollars in bribes from the cartel. Uh, in exchange for protection from arrest, safe passage for cocaine shipments and tip-offs about forthcoming law enforcement operations, okay? So he has been nabbed. Now, there's questions remain about how long the American, the U.S. authorities realized that he was working with the cartels. So all these questions. It seems to me that um, the whole situation is just so political. Isn't it? Oh, yeah. And it's a benefit to both sides, both the Mexican and, and the US side. And we'd be disgusted and have our eyes open, no doubt, if we really knew what was going on behind the scenes. Um, this tide of drugs is flowing into the US. There's a huge demand for it. You know, you'd kind of wonder at times, do the politicians also wash their hands with that and have the same attitude that the drug dealers do? Are they going to take it anyway? Well, you know, we're disgusted when we think about how corrupted it is, but it's so normal. The level of political corruption in Mexico has gone on for, I mean, it, 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 sadly, this is the story of much yeah. of Latin America. Yeah, yeah. High level, high level corruption. Uh, it happens to now being being fueled by billions in illicit drugs that Americans and Europeans and Canadians and Australians, everybody likes to take. So they've got, uh, I mean, Luna's particular accusation against him is that he he protected the Sinaloa cartel mm-hmm. at the expense of others. So I hate to say this, but the Sinaloa cartel were kind of like, they were the stable cartel. You didn't really hear, you'd hear about them killing people, but you wouldn't hear that an entire bus full of nuns or, you know, uh, uh, that was Los Zetas. On the other side, they're huge rivals. And these were the Los Zetas, uh, the, the Zeds, basically. Yes. They were they were the special forces. Mm-hmm. They were special forces trained by the CIA, who then became a cartel. And they would do these, if you remember, the narco banners became a rage for a while. These They would kill all these people and string them up off a freeway. And the banner would say, American government, stop protecting, ch- or sorry, uh, Mexican government, <laughs> and yeah. American government. Mexican government stopped protecting Chapo. Mm-hmm. So it was a known secret within the cartel that Chapo ran the protected cartel, mm-hmm. meaning he paid enough money. Um, and I suppose some of these other people were either too unsavory or too or not a, didn't have his level of political c- connection. But yeah, that was the source of his greatest power and the the region he, the reason he was able to last decades and decades and, and escape from prison was that he'd corrupted the system all the way to the top. 
Absolutely to the top. He'd been generous so, with his profits, in other words. But uh, well, so the Zetas are a bit like if the Wagner Group became a cartel, and yeah, that's the, exactly the kind of background. Same. It is similar. Background the Wagner Group, or, or imagine a rogue group of uh, SAS or, or mm. Green Berets or whatever elites. Uh, now, what Americans don't want to talk about in this ridiculous drug war is how much you know. Going way back to the Contras, remember this in in Central America, they they had all these groups that were counter fighting against communism that they trained trained in 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 asymmetric warfare and also dirty warfare, who then got into the drug business. And the Americans, the CIA knows a lot more than mm-hmm. people. Uh, I mean, but how the drugs are getting in. You know, there's been all these stories about how crack cocaine really, really came into the American inner cities with the um, acquiescence of the American government through the CIA in exchange for guns. So, I mean, I'm I'm quite cynical about it. I don't really think the American government wants this problem now, but I think the genie's out of the bottle. Mm-hmm. And the the ease with which, like what guy, guys like Chapo and his family and the other cartels were very ingenious in seeing well, why do we have to? Why do we have to stick to cocaine? Wait, what's this new drug? Fentanyl. So they're getting all the. They found some of these shipments coming from China. They do have the labs. They say, okay, we just need a chemist over here. Yeah. Another thing, Chapa was really good at, by the way. He's a dumb guy. I mean, he's not dumb business wise, but he can't even spell, you know, the word kitchen in Spanish, cocina. I would assume every, you know, your seven year old child or my eight year old daughter could spell kitchen. He can't in his texts. He spells it phonetically like like you know he he's smart about business mm-hmm. but this is a guy that didn't learn to read and write uh and and made his billions but there are you know big gaps in his understanding of how the world works because he's just and so once the most terrifying thing to these uh narco traffickers it was in in the case of escobar as well remember they started to bomb the the government if they even talked about extradition because they yes. know, hey, I'll build, I'll build my own prison here in in Colombia that has a zoo, and I and the and the national football team will come play matches. That's what Escobar did. So once the U.S. started to insist on extradition, they fear that because they know, oh, I'm going to a country where people don't really speak Spanish. I won't be able to corrupt everybody. So um, I'm sure that's what Ovidia is thinking now: is Gee, please don't extradite me. Don't yeah. agree to the extradition. That's his great uh, big hope that you know that he won't be allowed and that he'll be able to. To continue to to use that, and I, you'd wonder how his father feels about. I know he's not normal, Chapo, but yeah. you know it, it's oh. his, it's his son, and how would he feel about him spending the rest of his life locked up in that? I'm sure he's not happy about it, and I'm sure you know he does have parental pride in his kids. But I know from just reading these line sheets, these intercepted, that he was constantly warning these kids to stop, mm. stop with the flashing of the, but mind you, if you remember in our book, one of the reasons he could run his organization to a point from these, I mean, if people want to think his life, uh, Chapo's life was glamorous, he did have access to sex and Cialis and Viagra and all that kind of stuff. But he was living in these interconnected safe houses, traveling through tunnels. And he, he had one, Culiacan is a, is a major city, but he had one nice swimming pool, but it was covered with a tarp all the time because he was afraid of American surveillance, mm. high, you know, whether it was drones. So he never saw the sunlight even when he was living in these houses. But he decided to, there's a very good duck hunting region 
in, in Sinaloa, right? This kind of swamps on the coast. So he decided to build a little duck hunting uh, compound. And the, the reason to do it was then his, he has two sets of uh, primary sons by two different women, uh, Ovidio and his brother, and I, I won't name them all, but um, they would come and meet him regularly, like once a week, because I realized drug dealing is very tactile. You do need to meet with your people. You know, you can't just be constantly text messaging people. So uh, he had to find a place where he could safely meet with his sons. And he was very, very dependent on his sons to continue running this, his faction of the cartel. So on one end, I'm sure he's sad for his son. He's also thinking, wow, my power base is eroding. Um, you know, if, I don't know if that name has made uh, waves in Europe yet, but there's a guy, Mencho. Yes. Uh, Guadalajara. Yeah. So Mencho is the more powerful cartel leader now because he's more ruthless, um, younger, you know. So, you know, the you lop off the the the, the poppy or whatever, another one grows. And he's it, and he's another one that doesn't seem to have a particular big spending prowess. He just wants to earn it and bury it into the ground or whatever. It's like it's a game to him. It's not about the money. It's not about the riches. Um, and very violent, you know, another one. Yeah, it seems that there's Mexico is producing so many of them, Colombia as well. Um, yep. And what about you? Are you going to uh, delve into another <laughs> into another sordid life and existence again? Oh, are you for my next you mean project? You mean, yeah, um, I'm going to do a podcast, I think, with a very brave Mexican journalist. Mm. who wrote about a cartel, the making of a Sicario in, in Spanish. He had to relocate completely. He he was from a journalistic family in Mexico City. He kind of inadvertently infiltrated the life of a hitman, a, a young kid that he used to see at a boxing gym. And he wrote a very amazing book in Spanish, um, sort mm. of the birth the birth of a hitman. It was called How Was How Was Born the Devil. Así nació el diablo. He had he's a displaced journalist. He had to move to Canada just to be safe to write about the um, this is the Guadalajara, the new generation of Guadalajara. So he and I said, why don't we just have a podcast where we just talk about all this narco stuff and how the myths of it versus the reality. Um, but no, my next book is actually a, a World War II adventure story about brave women parachutists. Um, Oh, it's got nothing. <laughs> yeah, I know. My daughter said to me, my God, thank God you're not writing about complex, conflicted antiheroes. These are just good, brave women. I said, yeah, I'm, try I'm tired of writing about people that I have to like, well, is he a sociopath, but with a heart of gold or yeah. just a sociopath with a heart of lead? I don't know. Uh, but yeah, the next one is uh, a World War II yarn, a true adventure trying to rescue Jewish people in Eastern Europe. Uh, it was uh, the British Special Operations Executive. And I just sold it in uh, North America and I sold it to a scribe in the UK. Fabulous. So hopefully it'll be on the shelves soon. Well, I'll, I'm due to write it by next February. So, okay. That's just, so you just have to put your head into clock. You just have to do that little bit of the writing of it, like as opposed to. Oh, I went out and had a few cocktails. You know, let's do some tequila shots. See my friends <laughs> sold the book, sold the book. And one of my buddies who's actually got a working job, unlike me, like a has 250 employees. He says to me, well, it looks like all you've really got to do now is write the thing. Yeah, I was about to say <laughs> the same thing to you. You'll have to, and listen, I'm sure your podcast will be a huge success. You're a fabulous storyteller and uh, that'll no doubt come out well, in it. I can't hold a candle to you. Oh, not at all. I mean, that's, look, you're, you're, you really are so engaging about all this stuff and uh, very descriptive and uh, you can bring us along. Look, El Chapo's Life and your book, Hunting El Chapo, is a great read for anybody who wants to. Um, I'm holding it up. Yeah. So 
just this name Chapo is a brand. So this is the only book I have that was published. I think that's German. Okay. Uh, El Chapo Latrac is French. It's in every language in Europe, including Polish. And, and I just think it's the name Chapo. I mean, people are, especially young people, they hear that and they go, I find that stuff so cool. And I'm looking, I'm like, why? Like, well, what's- <laughs> Yeah, people, there's nothing cool about it. But I think he's probably just, you know, they don't come along that often. I know El Mancho because I'm another one of these train spotters when it comes to these guys. But lots of people, I'm sure very few of the listeners will have heard of him. Chapo to me is the same sort of level as Escobar. You know, people yeah. will know him. People who who will be born after he is long gone will know who he was. You know, he's a uh, and and to and to have a tunnel, one point five kilometer tunnel that you escape on a jerry rigged motorcycle, yeah. Steve McQueen style. Uh, that that's kind of uh, an intoxicating mythology as well to all young boys who go, hey, if I was ever in prison, here's how to escape. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> well, was he naked that time? That was, yeah, that, that was. No, that was, the, the previous time when he got, he escaped through his bathtub, he was completely naked. He was naked. completely naked, and yeah. Had, that was a very unattractive image, I have to say, the naked bit, yeah. He's not the most remember, attractive looking man. Like, actually, no. his son, is, his nickname is Mouse. Is that because he's got, he's inherited the sort of the smallness? Of a father? Oh, I I think it's because he has big ears. Oh, oh God! <laughs> like, no, I'm I'm telling you the I'm, I don't know how. It, it just just tell me this before you go. Like the Italian mafia, it, it's the same way. But the Mexican uh, cartels, it is absolutely your nickname can be the most cruel joke about your appearance. So, for example, his little gopher guy in um, in Culiacan was called Nose Naris. And he had a really big nose. So it's just like they pick the one feature about you that they can make fun of and it becomes this enduring thing. So my understanding is he's got big Mickey Mouse ears. I mean, that's what it looks like. It makes sense. And he's got very black eyes. So I think he called him Mouse because he looks like a mouse. That's it. You know what? <laughs> that's a really Dublin thing as well to do that, to find your weakness and then not only to sort of <laughs> use it against you, but to actually name you after it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we and totally- then it becomes a point. Yeah, it's like it shows the level of toughness in the world, too, because you have to be able to, you know, not get defensive and fight every time someone calls you that you just have to accept. Yeah. <laughs> like Chapo's name, by the way, Chapo's name, there's a there was a soccer player. I was watching uh, you guys, you know, follow football and in Mexican League and they were saying uh, Chapito. It's it just means shorty. There's a lot of guys in Mexico. Obviously, they're not very tall in certain regions. It's just like being called shorty and it's not flattering, but that's his, you're, you're, you're basically using this insulting name for a person like short guy, a midget or something, and you're embracing it. And yeah. that's your, yeah, that's your claim to fame. So, yeah. So I think Mickey Mouse, his, and he did, he didn't in, in, inherit his father's uh, uh, cunning, but Chapo is a very cunning guy without book smarts. I, this guy's not very bright. And, that's why the narco juniors will never be have that level of respect mm-hmm. to the older generation because they didn't earn it, as you said. Same with young punks in Ireland, I'm sure, whose fathers had been big gangsters. They just stepped into the shoes and exactly, you know, exactly. They'll ne- they'll never have the respect of the old school. Well, Douglas Century, thank you so much for a, as always entertaining conversation. Thank you, Nicole. It's always a pleasure to be on. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app 
for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.